I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom. Like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, right? For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. Big question here, Jim. Are human beings bad news for planet Earth? Should we downsize our population? And should we cut back on our consumption? Or should we keep innovating, come up with better ways to feed the world while minimizing our environmental impact? The great environmental debate, Charles Seaman. Well, a wizard is someone who believes that science and technology, properly applied, can let humankind produce its way out of its dilemmas. That you can produce more food, more water, more energy, and reduce climate change by applying high-tech methods. And that's the basic idea of a wizard. The prophet believes that the world is governed by fundamental ecological processes that humans transgress to their peril, and the role for science and technology is to find new ways to live within the limits. Our show is about fixes. Yeah, how to make the world a better place. How, how do, do we, we fix, fix it? it? How do we fix it? Jim, we hear a lot about big divisions in our society. Left versus right, Democrats versus Republicans, nationalists versus globalists. But maybe there's an even bigger split, optimists versus pessimists. And in this show, we're going to talk about two guys, Norman Borlaug, who was responsible for the Green Revolution, and William Vogt, whose ideas led to the modern environmental movement. These two men really encapsulate the long-running debate between environmental optimists who believe we can invent our way to a better future and pessimists who think we must impose limits on development and the impact of humans on the environment. Charles C. Mann joins us via Skype from Amherst, Massachusetts. Welcome to How Do We Fix It? Oh, it's my pleasure to be with you. So I want to start with you telling us a story uh, about a particular day in 1946 when a scientist named William Vogt visited a kind of experimental farm on the outskirts of Mexico City that was being run by an agricultural researcher named Norman Borlaug. Like, who were these guys and, and what happened? Well, at the time, there'd be no reason to know either of their names. Uh, William Vogt was the conservation official for the Pan American Union, an amateur ornithologist but uh, a very, very serious amateur ornithologist who'd published a lot of work. And uh, one of the few people in the entire world who were kind of rabidly concerned about the environmental state of the world. And he came in to this farm 
really to see the university that it was attached to, um, which is the University of Chapingo, which had some famous murals by Diego Rivera. And, and that's that's right outside Mexico right. City, it's right? It's east of Mexico City. Right now it's uh, about an hour outside by, by bus, most of which you go through and you can't tell that you're not actually in Mexico City because Mexico City has sprawled out so much. So across a dry lake bed at the time, very poor soil. And uh, he came there and he discovered that there was this experimental farm where um, this hapless young researcher named Norman Borlaug was trying to grow wheat in the midst, the worst conditions you can imagine. And uh, the wheat was being ravaged in addition by a terrible fungal disease called stem rust. And so this is, this, this is very crude, but you have one guy who's concerned about conserving stuff and the other guy about growing stuff. Right. And they met and they immediately disliked each other. And they both agreed on the problem, which was that uh, central Mexico, like much of the um, developing world at the time was an ecological basket case um, full of very hungry people. About two-thirds of the people in Mexico at the time simply did not get enough food to eat all the time. And so that there was a you know, chronic occasional malnourishment. And uh, to vote, the cause of this was obvious. The country's ecosystems were exhausted. They needed to be restored and built back up. To Borlaug, the problem was equally obvious. People didn't have the proper tools to grow what they needed, and they needed to be better equipped with better seed, um, more fertilizer, more irrigation, more tools of every, of every sort. Borlaug is saying, let's get together and grow more, and uh, Vogt is saying, no, let's see, you know, compact and shrink the human footprint and leave these systems alone. But over time, both of these guys, the ideas that they promoted would go on to change the world, even if neither of them are exactly household names right. today. Um, it goes to show that you can really do a lot if you don't care about getting credit. Um, <laughs> Borlaug um, went on to create what's been called the Green Revolution, which is a combination of high-yielding seeds, um, high-intensity agriculture, and irrigation that doubled, tripled, or even quadrupled grain yields across the world in the 60s, 70s, and 80s. And... Um, led to an enormous change in the human condition. It's been said that Norman Borlaug and his Green Revolution was responsible for saving as many as one billion lives. Yes, and um, that figure is kind of made up, um, but it gives you some idea of the impact. In fact, uh, I talked to him um, a couple of times for articles I had done early, earlier, in, and at one point a um, group of economists had put together a study showing that his work and the work he inspired had saved 600 million lives. And so I said to him, look, I gotta ask you a question. Are you aware of this study? And he said, yeah, I've heard of it. And I said, well, what do you feel like? You know, it's like the sports writer question. What do you feel like when you uh, um, read that you've saved 600 million lives? And of course he said, oh, I think it's exaggerated and it wasn't just me, there was a whole team of people and, and so And I said, okay, look, suppose these guys are off by an order of magnitude and you merely save 60 million lives. You know, how would that feel? How's that feel? And there's a long pause. And he finally said, you know what? It feels pretty good. <laughs> and, 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 then you, and then you have William Vogt. Right. And his worldview is very different. His worldview is pretty much um, diametrically opposed. And the reason to single him out is that he, more than anybody else, created the sort of intellectual underpinnings of the environmental movement. And the basic insight of the environmental movement is that there are limits. The idea is that life on Earth 
is governed by fundamental ecological processes with um, processes with limits that we transgress to our peril. And so he wrote, took this idea and wrote the first modern we're all going to help um, Road to Survival, which was published in 1948, a few years after he met Borlaug. And uh, in it, if you read it now, the language is a little different, of course, because it was written a while ago, but every single theme in it is familiar to you if you've read Silent Spring, or if you've read um, The Population Bomb, or if you've read The Limits of And they of came later. Anything later, even you know Al Gore's books. All those books stem from William Boat's book, which is the reason I picked him out. He's the guy who started it all. And it was the environmental movement is the... I would argue is the most powerful intellectual movement um, that came out of the 20th century. It's the most enduring one. You describe at one point the ideas that he presented uh, on on the environment as ideas that are so. Per- I'm going to. I'm sort of quoting you here. Ideas that are so pervasive today, we don't even recognize them as ideas. Right. I think that most people have the idea that you know every time you hear the phrase "save the environment," before vote, the idea of the environment as something that was like a a global thing that could be wrecked by people, it didn't exist. Now, in Vote's work, there's a lot of, there's a lot of anger. Yes. And there's a lot of, of sort of, you know, catastrophic predictions. What are some examples? Oh, almost every environmental book that you read at one point or another will contain a prediction. And the prediction is if things keep going on like this, something bad will happen. And it's usually very bad because they see these ecological processes as fundamental to the way the world works, when we break them, that's breaking the world. And so one of the aspects of these books is they are always full of these apocalyptic um, predictions, which makes it easy to make fun of them because um, quite frequently the predictions haven't come to pass. Well, I mean, yeah, you know, I read the population bomb. I was literally in like seventh or eighth grade. I was a member of an organization called Zero Population Growth that said no one should have more than one or two children. My parents got a real kick out of that because I was number three in the birth order in my family. (laughs) (laughs) But he made a lot of really scary predictions. What how did those pan out? Well, these specific predictions have not panned out. Before we get too far down the road mm-hmm. of the dueling ideas of these men, um, Norman Borlaug and William Vogt, can we talk about each of them individually? Sure. First, Vogt. He had always been an avid bird watcher, and in fact, even a kind of heroic bird watcher, because when he was 13, he was struck by polio, and so he spent the rest of his life in canes and braces. So he still loved the outdoors, and he would drag himself along, as he put it. Sometimes he had to crawl, and uh, he spent as much time as he possibly could birdwatching. And uh, he got a job as a kind of game warden for a a state park in Jones Beach in New York. And from there, um, did very well, started publishing papers in ornithological journals. And uh, by kind of a hook and crook, he ended up off the coast of Peru in a, a rather bizarre place, called the Chincha Islands, where he was in charge of trying to increase the bird populations for the government of Peru. And and what's special about those islands? Well, these islands um, are off the coast of Peru, where there is one of the world's great fisheries. And so these large aquatic fish-eating birds have been nesting there for millennia, and they have built up huge piles of excrement, guano. Bird crap. Bird crap, yeah. That's the technical term. And uh, this was the world's first high-intensity fertilizer. Um, And it was mined 
um, for decades by slaves um, brought in from China in horrible working conditions. And by the 1930s, this has been going on so long, that the government began to worry about the supply of excrement. And so they hired him as vote joke to augment the increment of excrement. <laughs> and um, he said, look, every now and then, these areas are swept by El Nino. And El Nino kills a lot of birds. If I increase the supply of excrement, that means increasing the supply of birds. That means that next El Nino comes, it'll just kill more birds. There's a cap on the number of birds that can exist. And there's a limit, and surpassing it will just lead to disaster. So he told them, you can't augment the increment of excrement. And in fact, <laughs> this principle, that there are natural limits to things, applies not just to birds on islands, but also to people in the world. And this was sort of the essential insight that he, that he got and led to the modern environment. Now, Borlaug, was a, as you say, was a completely different guy. Yeah. So tell us about Borlaug. He grew up on, appropriately enough, on a farm. Right, a very poor farm in Iowa and uh, worked uh, horrendously difficult conditions um, and kind of hated farm work. And he was liberated, as he saw it, by the arrival of a tractor, uh, cheap tractors. One of the things that Henry Ford did in addition to making cheap cars was to make cheap tractors. And um, he was able to then go on to college and uh, first in his family to do so. And uh, he ended up in central Mexico working on a project for the Rockefeller Foundation to increase wheat yields in Mexico. And that work in Mexico eventually led to some extraordinary breakthroughs yes. in agriculture and led to a huge increase in crop yields Absolutely. all around the world. Absolutely. And it was a transformative. Um, you know, most of the world was hungry um, at the time of the Green Revolution. And that simply isn't the case now. And more than any other factor, the Green Revolution, meaning this package of the improved seeds, high-intensity fertilizer and irrigation, it's, it's, it's very difficult to describe um, how much impact this had in life. I'm old enough that um, when my parents were mad at me for not finishing what was on my plate, they would say, don't you know there are children starving in Asia? You're right. And today, today parents, if a kid isn't working hard enough, they say, like, don't you know children are coding in China? Yeah, exactly. <laughs> we're going to be looking at some of the impacts of these dueling ideas between these two extraordinary men the prophet and the wizard, or the wizard and the prophet. We're speaking with Charles C. Mann. It's How Do We Fix It? I'm Richard Davies. And I'm Jim Meggs. It's that time of the year. Your vacation is coming up. You can already hear the beach waves, feel the warm breeze, relax, and think about work. You really, really want it all to work out while you're away. Monday.com gives you and the team that peace of mind. When all work is on one platform and everyone's in sync, things just flow. Wherever you are, tap the banner to go to monday.com. Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news... 
Alright, I'll do. Sign up now and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. Mintmobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45 equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply. If rated PG. We're going to talk quite a bit about wizards versus prophets. What is a wizard? What is a prophet? I know that, that Norman Borlaug is your wizard and William Vogt is your prophet. Well, a wizard is someone who believes that science and technology, properly applied, can let humankind produce its way out of its dilemmas. That you can produce more food, more water, more energy, and reduce climate change by applying high-tech methods. And that's the basic idea of a wizard. The prophet believes that the world is governed by fundamental ecological processes, that humans transgress to their peril, and the role for science and technology is to find new ways to live within the limits. So the technological optimism of Borlaug and his many, uh, the many people he influenced it doesn't seem to be as clearly defined in the public's mind the way votes ideas are defined. Uh, but you sum up the core philosophy as be smart, make more. I mean by that, that the core idea is you turn on the science machine, you put on your thinking cap, and you, you figure a way to produce your way out of your problems. If it's food, you know, you use genetic modification to create hyperproductive crops. If it's water, you use giant nuclear desalination plants to produce more water. If it's um, energy, you use nuclear power. Um, the idea is that you use large-scale, centralized, high-tech facilities to turn on the spigots and um, avoid the shortfalls. Now, to profits, all of this is like saying, we have a fire Let's uh, treat it by pouring on gasoline because they see te technologically enabled centralized growth as the problem, not the solution. And in fact, vote specifically worried even back during that Mexico project. Yes. He said we shouldn't be trying. I think the quote goes something like we shouldn't be trying to put millions more feet under the dinner table. Yes. He said the problem is too much consumption. You're just encouraging more people to be more people to consume more. What we need to do is reduce the human imprint uh, footprint on the earth. And he saw that as population control, which I think turned out to be a mistake. But this essential idea that we have too many people consuming too much and being too hard on the earth's ecosystem still remains. To what extent is this an argument between optimists versus pessimists? Well, I think that they um, if you're. A wizard, by the way, I made up that term. I, um, I should say that at the beginning of the project, when I described this sort of set of ideas to a friend of mine who's a professor of philosophy, he said, oh, yeah, that's obvious. You should call them Schumpeterian technophiliac miliarists. <laughs> and so you can see what... You mean the, the, the wizards. I, I said wizard, I think I'll call yeah, that. Yeah, the wizard, right, right. who's, who's Norman Borlaug. Right, right, right. And he had an even worse term um, I, with, with German words I can't even pronounce, Blauschweben or something, for the, uh, for the prophet. So that, that's where those terms came up. Um, so the wizards would say, I think it is, between optimists and pessimists, 
The prophets would, would define it differently. I think they would say it's between people who have a realistic perception of what the world is like and people who live in an utterly deluded fantasy world in which we can grow um, perpetually without a consequence. And just to remind our listeners, the wizard in this case is Norman Borlaug and the prophet is William Vogt, right. the father of the modern environmental movement. So the, these two worldviews, they really are fundamentally different. And the conflict between these two uh, ways of looking at problems have a big impact on policy. What are some of the issues today where we see people breaking down along this fault line? Well, one of the big ones you know, that comes right to mind is agriculture. Big ag, you know, industrial agriculture, is very interested in the technology of genetic modification, GMOs. And you know also that um, profits have been fighting this. Um, they see industrial agriculture as the problem, not the solution. They see it, you know, as a, a massive vehicle for soil erosion, for um, fertilizer um, overspills that cause dead zones, for the loss of soil microbiomes, and a host of other ecological problems. And so GMOs, which are an attempt to make the system work in overdrive, they see as a catastrophic idea. And, and there's also been a huge fight over nuclear power, nuclear power. where you have a lot of people who really worry about carbon emissions saying, look, we simply are not going to produce enough power if we don't have nuclear power as part of the carbon-free equation. And it's not all going to come from wind power. It's not all going to come from, from solar power. And yet, on the other hand, we have many people in the environmental movement, most, in fact, who uh, think that nuclear power is a terrible thing. Absolutely. They see it as an insult to the future. Um, you know, leaving this waste that'll be around for thousands and thousands of years. And there's a host of other um, objections as well, part of which is this objection to the idea of these huge centralized high-tech facilities. And uh, a lot of the prophets see this as sort of fundamentally anti-democratic and anti-human in a way. And uh, so, so that debate also breaks down between wizards and prophets? Yes, um, very much so. One of the things I really love about your writing is that it's balanced, that you're not taking a big stand one side or the other, correct? Well, I try not to. I mean, I have my own opinions, but I think I stand on much firmer ground, and it's much better for the reader. So what are the weakest arguments made by both sides? Well, for the prophets, certainly many times the arguments they've made about population per se have not proven to be correct. You know, if you read the original edition of uh, The Population Bomb, for example, the book by Paul Ehrlich. This is the, er the Ehrlich book, yes, yeah. That came out in 1968 and was an enormous uh, bestseller. And I also read it at the same time as you guys and was scared the pants off of me. And um, it begins by saying the battle to, a sentence something like the battle to feed humankind is over. And uh, it predicts that in the 1970s, hundreds of millions of people will die of starvation. Um, and that just didn't happen. The wizards typically don't take into enough consideration, in my opinion, um, social factors. A big one is that uh, if you read Borlaug, he's talking about the increase in productivity in the land. And there's not a single word about the economics involved. And think about this. At the time, a place like Mexico or a place like India um, is uh, broken up into lots and lots of poor farm 
each of which is rather small. If suddenly each of those farms is able to produce four times as much grain, the land is now four times more valuable. It now becomes worth stealing. And that's just what happened all over the world. And often with the aid of the government. And this is something that no person involved in the Green Revolution wanted, but it's but they also didn't consider that it could happen. And so, so neither side was was a, you know fantastic at at predicting the future. Right now, today it seems to me that taking the viewpoint of the prophets, the the pessimism, the alarms over the state of the environment is not very controversial, and everyone kind of knows those arguments. Whereas the wizard arguments, the optimism arguments, do tend to be controversial. And I, I think I detect, even in your even-handedness, a certain sympathy for the, um, for the, the wizard arguments that's unusual in a lot of environmental writing. We've had other you know, people in your camp, like Michael, Michael Shermer, mm-hmm. Greg and, Easterbrook. And Michael, and Michael Schellenberger. Uh, yeah. uh, and uh, Michael Schellenberger about nuclear power. Greg Easterbrook was on our show recently. All of them basically, you know, techno optimists of one type or another, and they get huge amount of pushback anytime they say the world isn't as bad as you think. You've been on the road talking to bookstores and stuff about your book. Where do you get pushback? Well, actually, I think what I try to do is um, point out the difference between um, the wizards and the prophets. Typically, when the wizards, like, um, all the people you mentioned, or um, Steven Pinker in Enlightenment Now, which is a current book about mm-hmm. this, uh, they, what they will typically do is present graphs, and it'll show you know, infant mortality over decades, or global average calories per day, or global income, or you know, a whole variety of things right. like that. And they all show the same thing, which is that there, the line goes along at a low level for centuries or even millennia, and then rockets up in the 19th and 20th century um, as, as people get better off. And all that's a fact. It's just simply a fact. But all of those are also human-centric. You know, they're, they're measures of human welfare. The environmental group isn't persuaded because they, they want measures of the environmental welfare. And you could draw similar graphs for bad things for the environment, like, for instance, the amount of plastic in the ocean. Now, it's difficult to say exactly why that is bad from a human welfare point of view. I mean, are there hungry people because of plastic in the ocean? I very much doubt it. But at the same time, most people feel uncomfortable about the fact that the ocean is filling up with plastic crud. Right. And you see those pictures yeah. of seabirds, right? The dead seabirds with their stomachs full of um, pop tops and things like that. And most right. people feel disquiet about that. You, you know, when people like, Greg Easterbrook talked. They're totally accurate, as far as I know, about what human welfare. But the point is, the human welfare isn't what the what the environmental groups who are pushing back are concerned about. Charles, you say your book presents quote no plan and argues for no specific course of action, but there is an overall thrust uh, in your work that suggests that neither the wizard worldview or the prophet worldview is sufficient to guide policy. That we need some kind of synthesis between, you know, fears of collapse and blind faith and endless innovation. I would say um, first we're going here from the world of fact into the world of opinion. Um, two things I would urge. 
One is that both sides are kind of fundamentally hard science oriented, you know, biologically um, oriented, but neither side has taken into enough consideration the human sciences. And these solutions or putative solutions, um, I think would be really modified if, they, if the hard scientists talk to the uh, social scientists. And the second, I sometimes, uh, is further, further out there, um, imagine a conversation between these guys in which each side grants the fundamental premises of the other and says, where do you go from there? And so... So in other words, the environmentalists admit that you have to feed the planet somehow, and the uh, techno-optimists admit that we have to live in some kind of balance right. uh, with nature. Or, in, you know, for agriculture, the environmental groups um, say, okay, genetically modified organisms are safe to consume, right? Or can be safe to cons consume. And the wizards say, yes, Industrial agriculture has plagued us with a whole host of really bad environmental problems. So once you get there, this to me suggests whole new arrays of areas for, for research in making small-scale networked farms that more uh, mimic natural processes work better by using the kind of enormous technological um, expertise that we've acquired over the last few decades. Very typically, this, this doesn't happen. You know, it, it, you'll talk to, um, you know, researchers involved in, in GMOs, and they're, you know, extremely proud of what they're doing, and justifiably, it's amazing. But they really don't want to hear or talk much about the fact that their technology is going to be stuck into a socioeconomic matrix that a lot of people object to. And, and they aren't crazy to object to parts of it. So... Charles, the, um, the great apocalyptic environmental writer Edward Abbey wrote the book Desert Solitaire. And I think in the prologue to that book, he said something like, this isn't a book, it's a brick. Throw it through a plate glass window. What do you want readers to do with your book? I would hope um, that they would say, okay, I think I know what's going on here. Now I can make up my own mind. Perfect. <laughs> Perfect. That, that's great. That's, that's what we love about our show, is that hopefully that's what we're urging people to do, make up their own minds. This is How Do We Fix It. I'm Richard Davies. And I'm Jim Meggs. Thank you, Charles C. Mann, for joining us. Bye-bye. So you are definitely the wonkier of us two guys on the show, right? Me? You accept that, Wonky? right? Yeah. It's a, and, and here's a classic example. You read Paul Ehrlich's book, uh, The Population Bomb, in seventh grade. I, I, and I was insufferable, you know, lecturing my parents <laughs> about how our evil lifestyle was going to cause the collapse of the planet. I debated this around the dinner table with my dad, the economist, you know, like, we're going to run out of oil by 1980. And he said, well... What happens when you start to run out of something? The price goes up. What happens when the price goes up? You figure out ways to use less of it. You figure out ways to drill for more of it. You, things change. All these are, and what he taught me was these are dynamic systems. You don't assume that what you see today is a steady state, incapable of any 
any change or improvement. So did you move from profit to wizard? So here, so yeah, so I moved from, you know, very much from the sort of anti-capitalist profit kind of viewpoint to um, to more of a libertarian worldview, very optimistic that these problems are going to change. But I never lost that sense that the problems are real. Some people who are more conservative, they just deny the problems altogether. Absolutely. And, and I think that's a huge, huge issue. By the way, this is definitely a book I'd recommend. Of all the yeah. books we've done, this is right up there. As a piece of we love storytelling. All, wait, wait. I have to tell her all our previous. No, guests. we, we don't. love all our books equally. <laughs> no, we don't. Well, I don't. Forgive me, but but this book is a great piece of storytelling. I mean, it's a, a very difficult subject. And at first, I thought, oh god. In fact, that book sat on my desk for three weeks unopened. I thought, oh my goodness. I, I you know. I, I'm not going to do this. It's too it's too heavy for me. But he's such a good storyteller. I couldn't tell which side of this great debate he was on as I was reading the book. Well, there there's there's so much truth in both sides. There's a growing movement that says let's take the environment seriously, the health of the planet seriously, and let's solve those problems with the best technology we can have. But he also exposed the weakness in the eco pragmatist view, which is. It's too centralized, and that is uh, – I'm not no. saying they're wrong, but there is a legitimate objection there about having great big nuclear power plants, everybody living in cities. Right. The, so the, so the, here's – We so, break this down to a more I, local no, I level. I really disagree on that. I think the emphasis on everything being decentralized, localized, almost like the idea, you know, the Jeffersonian model for the early U.S., it's lovely. It's, it's got a lot of spiritual value. You know, we should all get our food from local farms where we know the farmer. People, these things really are meaningful to people. It doesn't mean they always make economic sense. The argument against, you know, all oh, these nuclear power plants getting too expensive – why I happen to, as you know, I'm writing an article about nuclear power right now. Why are nu- the, these next generation nuclear power plants get so expensive? Because of excessive criticism from the 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 eco pessimists that nuclear power ha- you know wasn't safe enough, wasn't safe enough. What happened was perfectly good plants that would have worked fine, been perfectly safe, that could have been built at a reasonable budget, wound up getting replaced with these insanely complex, more modern plants that, were, that solved a problem that wasn't really there. You know, we make plants too expensive to build. What did we build instead? Coal plants. Okay, I want to have this guy on the, back on our show, a guy called Jim Meggs, who's, who's, <laughs> who's done a lot of research on, on nuclear power. Let's do another show on nuclear power, and let's talk about this in another episode. It's how do we that's, fix it? That's great. I'm Jim Meggs. I'm Richard Davies. Our producer is Miranda Schaefer. We are a production of... Davies content. We make digital audio for companies and nonprofits. Uh, several different examples. We do a classic car podcast uh, called Haggerty Side Drafts, and we also work with One Day University on their new series of podcasts. Both worth checking out. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Did you know cats tend to hide symptoms of sickness and pain? I learned this the hard way after losing my cat, Gingy. So I created Pretty Litter, a health monitoring litter that helps detect early signs of illness by changing colors, saving you money and potentially your cat's life. Pretty Litter is veterinary and developed, and it's the easiest way to keep tabs on your fur baby's health right at home. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details. Hey, it's Paige DeSorbo from Giggly Squad. High quality fashion without the price tag. Say hello to Quince. 
I'm snagging high-end essentials like cozy cashmere sweaters, sleek leather jackets, fine jewelry, and so much more, with Quince being 50% to 80% less than similar brands. And they partner with factories that prioritize safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. I love that. Luxury quality within reach. Go to quince.com slash style to get free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. Quince.com slash style.